Good morning again, everyone. My name is Troy. I'm one of the leaders here. I want to welcome you again. Uh, this new year, we've been going through a series called, uh, da- well, not called Daniel. It's Daniel. I'm going through the book of Daniel, a series called Integrity in the Midst of Adversity. And last week, we took a little bit of a pause. We hit a pause button with Claude uh, Hickman was here. He was one of our prospective speakers. It was a blessing to have him here. Hopefully, if you were here last weekend, you were encouraged by what he had to say. Uh, we're going to jump back in and pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago, though, when I went through chapter three. We're going to pick up chapter four this morning. But before I, we jump in, I want to kind of give you an illustration to set the stage for this morning. Um, last month or so, I've had the opportunity to uh, coach Isaac and Ephraim, my sons. They're in uh, first and second grades, respectively, at the Boys and Girls Club. They have a little league there, a basketball league there. And I got to just, I got to tell you, coaching first and second graders is a hoot, okay? Like, uh, there'll be times where the kids are running the wrong way. Like, they're going to the wrong basket. There'll be times they just pick the ball up and run like a Heisman, like they, like they don't have to dribble it. It's nuts. Last, uh, yesterday morning, we had a game. There was a, a young, young man on our team who's just like, he's like, I'm not playing defense. Okay? I'm like, okay, I guess you're not going to play defense. So we went down. It was like five on four. Anyway, he was on the court. He's just like, I'm not playing defense. Like, we're going to have to work on that in practice this week. Anyway, so one of the things that um, when my girls went through a, a year or so ago, they they were... Uh, one of the coaches encouraged them with a tool that I, uh, I really re- was like, this is a great tool. And I, so I've encouraged our parents uh, to, to get these for their children as well. These are called dribbling goggles. I didn't know anything about them. I really like basketball, still play basketball twice a week. Anyway, um, I never knew that these things existed. Okay. But so these are dribbling goggles. And I want you to think about horse blinders, sort of, but for basketball. So you know what horse blinders are, right? You want to, the horses will have the blinders on so they don't get distracted from things on the right or left. The, these dribbling goggles, like three or four bucks, they're meant to cause you as a dribbler, as you're learning to dribble, not to look at the ball when you're dribbling, right? Because if you're wearing these things and you want to try to look at the ball, you've got to really try. You're going to be like, all right, here I go. Here I go. And so I've said, hey, parents, you should get these. They're not that expensive. And just, you know, wear these things. Have the kids wear them as a practice. They're going to get a feel for the ball. And sure, it's going to go bouncing off. But like they're going to get a feel for the ball. And they're also going to see the court. Like they're going to see what's happening uh, in the game and what's going on. You've got to look, look up when you're playing basketball. So I'm going to preach these on the whole time. And if i got to look at my notes today, I'm really going to look at them. No, I'm not going to preach these on the whole time. But, but I, I want to ask you this question. Is it possible that that these kind of goggles would, would maybe not be beneficial only for those who are learning to play basketball. But is it possible that these kinds of goggles would be helpful for us in life in general? So, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to help me out. Just humor me for a second. I want you to, to just where you're sitting, I want you to just look down. Just as you're sitting, just look down. Okay, if you're looking at me, then you're not listening. All right, so you're looking down. There we go. So I want, you to, I want to ask you, just to humor me, what are you looking at when you're looking down? Some of you fell asleep. All right. So what, what are you looking at? Yourself. You are looking right at your belly button, right? You're just looking there. Is this how we live life? You can look up now. Sorry, you can look up. Is this how we live life? Looking down at ourselves. And if so, do we need dribble goggles like this to help us look up? See, what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see two different guys. One guy who lived his life looked, looking up at God, and one who lived his life looking down at himself. 
And so I want to go through this with you and show you that looking up is a far better way. So uh, grab the Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 4. It's on page 628 in the Bibles. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I really would encourage you to grab a Bible, even if it's, you get your phone out or something, you follow. It's a whole chapter, and we're going to go through pretty much the whole thing. There's going to be a couple times where I'm going to ask you to help read some of the words out loud with me. Just a few here and there. Um, they're going to be important ones. So... Uh, chapter 4, uh, page 628, to give you some context in the case that you just came into Kettlebrook for the first time today, and you're like, I don't know anything about Daniel. Daniel was, we're, we're talking about the time frame about 600 years before Christ. Uh, we're talking about the setting would be the city of Babylon, and there was a king there named Nebuchadnezzar. He had gone over to the people of Israel and taken captive the people of Israel and brought some of the youth, uh, young noble men, back to Babylon. And what we see in the first three chapters of Daniel is integrity in the midst of adversity. A guy named Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so we see it over and over in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4 is something different, different happens in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes the pen. He, he, he does some of the narrating. He speaks now. And so we're going to hear from his perspective for the first time in this book. So we're going to start with Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Before we do that, though, I want to pray before we dive in. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come together freely, that we can come together um, of our own volition and bring ourselves before you and bring ourselves before these words that you've given to us. Lord, these words are breathed by you and they're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we pray, Father, that uh, your promise that these words would not return void would become true this morning. As we read through your word, may these words be the most impactful things we hear. Um, and we ask that you do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar is doing the speaking here. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you greatly prosper. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, I just want to do a quick reality check. I'll stop a few points here. Just reality check. This is Nebuchadnezzar, same king, like, of the, the greatest empire in the world at the time. And he's saying, hey, I, I want to tell you, I want every, people of every nation, people of every language, you are taking perspectives here, to the, you know, as part of who we are. You're going to be like, oh, man, they keep... That keeps coming up in the Bible over and over again. It does. I want people of all nations to know about this. He says, hey, i got to tell you this amazing thing that God did. Okay? So let me tell you, he says, in verse 4. Here we keep, let's keep going. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. His name is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Okay, so again, just pausing quick. Everything's going good for Nebuchadnezzar. He's in his palace. It says he's at ease. He's contented there, except then he has a dream. And if you've been tracking with Daniel, you go, this sounds a little familiar because chapter 2, the same thing happened. But here, he just says, here's the dream. In chapter 2, he's like, I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. Here he's just saying, hey, here's my dream, and no one can interpret it. 
except Daniel. And so here's the dream. I'm going to start up in verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. We're going to put that tree up there. That's not the actual tree. That was from uh, Google. Just for a visual, though. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Okay, we've got this next picture. There's a stump there, okay? Just for the visual. Now, I want you to see something that happens in the middle of verse 15 as I keep reading. All of a sudden, it says, let him, we're just talking about a tree. All of a sudden, it's, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision, verse 17, is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. Can you read this next uh, line with me out loud? Here we go. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign. I'm going to stop there. It's sovereign. So that, this is what's the divisions, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. Okay? So again, simplify things. Huge tree. Tree, angel says, comes, says, cut the tree down. Okay? And then in 15, there's a personification of the tree. It turns from a tree and it to a him somehow. We need to interpret this dream. And so back in verse 19, we find, let's pick up in 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. And then, and I'm just going to stop there, and then in verses 20 through 24, he interprets the dream for him. I'm not going to read it only because it's redundant, but he basically says, the tree is you, you're the tree. Okay? And then verse 25, let's skip down to that. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you, and these next three words, please say them out loud with me, until you acknowledge. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you. Read this with me. When you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Okay? So again, just pausing here, give you a break. It's a, it's a, it's a long chapter. But basically, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar. And seven periods of time are going to happen until he acknowledges who's the most high. Until he acknowledges who's the most high, he's going to be like an animal somehow. 
Okay, until he takes his dribbling goggles and puts them on and looks up instead of looking down at himself, this is going to be the case. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residency by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you. Read these next with me. Three words. Until you Acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, verse 33, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's a picture for you. So in this, in this narrative, we have, account, we have an account of two different men. We have a man who, who lives looking down and looking at himself, and we have a man who lives looking up and looking up to God. I want to start with this man looking up to God. If you remember back to Daniel chapter 1, which you may not, and that's okay, I get it. It's been a while. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was trying to do three things. He was trying to live a life that honored God, that, that did not, he didn't defile himself, so he was setting himself apart from those around him, but he was also considerate of those who were around him. And he's doing it again here in chapter 4. Again and again he's doing it. Last time I I, I spoke, we talked in chapter 3 about integrity means courageous consistency of character. And he's doing it again. Where do we see this in chapter 4? I'll show you where we see it. Here's where we see it. Daniel can interpret this dream. And you know what? Is this dream good news for Nebuchadnezzar? No. So if you had a dream that you knew that was for the king of the enemy of your people... You might kind of be like, this is going to be awesome. I don't know how it's going to play out, but like, he's going to be like an animal. This is going to be great. Okay? That's not what Daniel does. Instead, it says that he is perplexed and scared for Nebuchadnezzar, his enemy, the king of the kingdom of his enemy. He basically says, my Lord, I wish this dream were about your enemies. Daniel is compassionate, empathetic towards his enemy. How? You know why? Because he's got dribbling goggles on. He just looks up. He's looking up. He's, he's, this isn't about me. This is about God and His King. This is something bigger going on here than just my stuff. Okay? It's convicting. Do, do you think you could respond like Daniel? With this same information? That's convicting. Now, because of what I think Daniel's sincere compassion is towards the, the King, he gets to do something here that I think is fairly... Uh, uh, courageous. Let me just say the word courageous. He, gets to, he gives the king advice. By the way, the king didn't ask for advice. He just says, hey, can anyone interpret my dream? He didn't say, can you give me some advice? But Daniel says, hey, may you be pleased to accept my advice, O king. And then Daniel doesn't soft pedal anything. He's not like, oh, great king Nebuchadnezzar, you're amazing. Your amazingness is awesomeness. You're the most asbestist. And maybe if you just tweaked a few little things, then things might turn out differently. You know what he says? He says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, renounce your sins and your wickedness. I don't know what kind of, I mean, like that takes some serious gumption. 
to say that to the king of the most powerful empire in the world. Renounce your... He calls, the, he calls Nebuchadnezzar a sinner and a wicked man. And then Nebuchadnezzar receives it. Now, he doesn't obey it. He doesn't listen and apply it right away, but he receives it. Okay? This is amazing. Now, if Daniel had had his eyes fixed on himself, he gets this information. He can use it to press his advantage. He can use it to, to kind of just watch things play out and relish Nebuchadnezzar turning into an animal, which is, you know, what happens. But he doesn't do that because that's not what te- integrity is about. You see, I think sometimes maybe you're here today and you're even wondering like, oh, I know why, I know why as a family we're talking about integrity. We're talking about integrity so we can become better people. No, I just want to set the record straight about that. This series is not about how we as a family can have more integrity so you can be a better person. Uh, this isn't a series that you can have more integrity so you'll have a better, you'll be more successful and, if, and, and you'll have better relationships with people. Those are probably byproducts. Will you be a better person if you have more integrity? Yeah, probably. But that's not the point of this series. Because that's not the point of what's going on. And with integrity, true integrity is not meant to be about us. It would be so ironic if it was. We'd be basically Nebuchadnezzar. We'd, we'd be, be just like Nebuchadnezzar to say, oh, you know what? My life is so awesome because of my integrity. That's self-righteousness. Daniel never once in here says, you know what I should do? I should have a good integrity so that I'll get more influence in Babylon. He doesn't do that because that's not what it's about. When we live with integrity, we fix our eyes on God, we step into his story, he gets the glory, and then others notice him, not us. That's what integrity is about. That's why we're doing this. Daniel's looking up. Nebuchadnezzar is looking down. In fact, I think that is what triggers what happens in all of this. Okay? Check out verse 29. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, just, just humor me, just for fun. If he's walking on the roof, looking over the, the city, which direction would it be looking? Down, thank you. He'd be looking down. He'd be looking down. He's like, this city is so great because I'm so great. This city is so glorious because I'm glorious. This city is so majestic because of my majesty. Boom! This is what he's doing. You know, there was, um, there was a cuneiform cylinder that was discovered around Iraq, which is where Babylon was. Uh, we find an inscription that was written by Nebuchadnezzar on it. Here's what it says. It says, this is Nebuchadnezzar saying this. Ready? I built a strong wall that cannot be shaken with bitumen and baked bricks. I laid its foundation on the breast of the netherworld. And I built its top as high as a mountain. Those of you, you guys know the Old Spice commercials where Terry Crews comes busting through the wall like, block, block, block. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. Anyway, you've got to check it out. Anyway, that's what, you're, that's what I'm seeing here. Like, I have many leather-bound books. My office smells of rich mahogany. Okay? Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Now, historically speaking, there were 15 million bricks that built the city of Babylon, okay? And they looked like this. This is what they looked like. And so the bricks were like this, and they had a stamped inscription on them, okay? And the next slide will kind of zoom in on what that is. And for those of you who read cuneiform, you know exactly what that says. Uh, it says that 
um, I got to look actually what it was. I, I can't read cuneiform. It says, uh, I am Nebuchadnezzar, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, the eldest son of Nebuchadnezzar, that's his dad, king of Babylon am I. So when he talks about the city that he built, like literally every brick has his name on it. I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due. Dr. Paul Ferguson notes this. He says, stacked all around Nebuchadnezzar were over 15 million bricks, each containing his name and royal titles. Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by six walls and a 262-foot moat. But Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that all the bricks were made of mud. And so, while the words were still on his lips, the words of the dream came true. He was driven away from people and he started living like an animal. He is not contented at ease anymore. If you thought Nebuchadnezzar was looking down before, he's like a cow right now. He is looking down hardcore. Okay? And he's just, I mean, I think about the fact that they, they use the word cow here, if it was like a cow. I don't know if about you, if, do you maybe you have any experience with cattle? Uh, some of you, maybe your city folks in here? Okay, no, I, I grew up on a dairy farm, so I have some experience with cows. And I just want to tell you something. They are not very bright. Not very bright. One of the things I had to do when I was a kid is uh, mow the lawn. We had a big lawn on our farm. And so before you mow the lawn, though, you have to take the apples from underneath the apple tree that had fallen on the ground. You've got you to gotta throw them over where the cow pasture was because you don't want to ride the riding lawnmower over apples. You've got applesauce and apple juice everywhere. It's a big mess, okay? So Dad was like, you've got to get those over there. So I'd throw, get my, my outfielder arm out, start throwing apples over to the, to the pasture, the cow pasture. And the cows would see that coming. They're like, oh, apples. They love apples, right? So they start eating these apples. And eating them. And sometimes when I'd throw an apple over, the apple would come and it would skip underneath their underside. And they would instinctively just go like this, okay? They'd kick. If you see a cow kick, they know how to kick, okay? And, and they would be clumped together, so 90% of the time they're just kicking another cow, like right in the face. Wham! And, and I just need to tell you, nobody was concerned. Not, neither animal was concerned about that. Just like. I'm just saying, king of, king of the most powerful empire in the world at the time is acting like a cow. Now, some of you go, see, Troy, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. This is crazy. This, I mean, what? Uh, if you actually look it up, there's, there's a mental disorder called boanthropy. You can look it up. It's where people act like cows. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that, that a mental disorder happened right here. I'm just saying this is probably not as far-fetched as you might think. But this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking down, and now he's really looking down. Let's see what happens, though, in verse uh, 34 as we finish out the chapter. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. Now, before you close your Bibles, I just want you to help me. In what verse is Nebuchadnezzar restored? Take a look. We just read, we just read it. What verse is Nebuchadnezzar restored? I, I, you can't mumble it. 34, thank you. Verse 34. Now, help me out. 
what seems to happen in verse 34 that's the trigger that restores him. What happens? He looks up. That's right. He raises his eyes to heaven and his sanity is restored. It's like the trigger. He raised his eyes to heaven. This is what happened. He's looking up instead of looking down on himself. Okay? This is the trigger. He acknowledged who God is. It says it in here four times in verse 17, 25, 26, and 32. Basically, it's until you acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar who's really in charge. Until you acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar who's really king, you're going to act like an animal. That's exactly what happened. Until Nebuchadnezzar, you look up instead of looking down. This is going to be the case. I recently read an article by Eric Metaxas. It's a few years old, um, but it speaks to this idea of looking up and, and not necessarily looking down. It's a little bit of a longer uh, excerpt that I have here, but it's, it's, it's good, so I want to read it to you. Bear with me. In 1966, Time Magazine ran a cover story asking, Is God dead? Many have accepted the cultural narrative that he's obsolete, that as science progresses, there is less need for a God to explain the universe. Yet it turns out that the rumors of God's death were premature. More amazing is that the relatively recent case for his existence comes from a surprising place, science itself. Here's the story. The same year, Time featured the now famous headline that the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. The right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. With such spectacular odds, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence was sure to turn up something soon. But as years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers had discovered precisely nothing. What happened? As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there was far more factors, that there were far more factors necessary for life than Sagan supposed. His two parameters grew to 10 and then 20 and then 50, and so the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and kept on plummeting. As factors continued to be discovered, the number of possible planets hit zero and kept going. In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this one. Probability said that even we shouldn't be here. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. The odds against life in the universe are simply astonishing. And yet, here we are, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of those parameters have been perfectly met by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being? Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. He later wrote that a, that a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and the biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And yet, in light of this evidence, and maybe in spite of this evidence, like Nebuchadnezzar, we refuse to look up. 
We, we look down, okay? We need our dribbling goggles on that force us to look upwards because we don't want to look up. We don't want to look up to God. We don't want to acknowledge God. There's a, there's a variety of reasons we don't want to acknowledge God. Uh, we, don't, we, want to be, we don't want to acknowledge God or look up because we want to be like Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4. In verse 4, he's content. He's at ease in his palace. He's living the dream, okay? And then he had a nightmare. And he started living a different dream, reality. We, we don't want to look up to heaven because when we do, we, we might have to give God credit because we're like, dang, no, 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 my life's awesome because I'm awesome. I mean, I should be getting myself some bricks, Or maybe you're here like, no, Troy, that's not what I say. I don't say, hey, my life is so awesome because of how awesome I am. You might be thinking, well, my life is horrible. And that's, that's, that's a different way of looking down, okay? As we look down and say, look at how awesome my world and my life is because I made it that way. You can also say, oh, look at how horrible my world is. We can become very myopic in that looking down instead of looking up. It's some, there's something bigger going on. See, the world revolves around us when we're like Nebuchadnezzar. We look down. Oh, man, the world, look, 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 360 view right here. It just revolves around us, okay? Sometimes people say to me, Troy, I don't really, I really engage in religious talk or faith talk because, I mean, there's all kinds of religions, and how do you know which one's right? And, and, and that, is a, that is a straw man. And the reason why people bring that up is because they're like, if they start going down the road of engaging with the dialogue about God, they, they know they, the conclusion is that, that maybe there is a God. And if there is a God, that means they're not. That means that life's got to change. They may not be able to just do whatever they want. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar was a man who looked down. Daniel's a man who looked up. And think about what happened because Daniel was a man who looked up. He took a man, he was able to live in a life in such a way that a man who was looking down, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, was able to look up. And if you think about it, we're talking about 2,600 years ago this happened. And what do you know about Nebuchadnezzar? Probably not much of anything. Babylon's gone. You know what isn't? This testimony that's being read about God by Nebuchadnezzar in his lips all over the world today in all kinds of languages. This is his testimony. This is his legacy about the one who actually has a real legacy. That's amazing. That's because Daniel wanted to just live with his eyes up fixed on God. And we want to be that kind of people too. Are we going to be people that live fixed with our eyes fixed down on ourselves? Are we going to be a people, a family that looks up as our eyes fixed on God? I think that's the challenge for us. Are we going to trust in God or are we going to try to trust in our own sovereignty? So let me ask this question. Do you need dribbling goggles for your life? Do you need these so that you don't look down? In what ways do we need to take Daniel's advice and renounce our own sins and our own wickedness do what's right. Be kind of the oppressed. See, Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that everything God does is right and all his ways are just. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that God's able to humble those who walk in pride. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. God not only taught Nebuchadnezzar this lesson. God came to be this lesson. In verse 17, if you, if you were to look back at it, it says... The Most High is sovereign, and, it, and he sets over the kingdoms the lowliest of men. Yeah, he does. You see, 600 years later, after this happened, there was one who, who came. 
And he didn't act like an animal, but he was born among them. In a stable. There was one who came, who, who spent time with and ate with sinners. Tax collectors and what was the dredges of society by others seen as that. There was one who had disciples who followed him, but he took up the towel and washed their feet. There was one who left his palace to come and dwell among us. His name is Jesus, and he's the king of the only real kingdom, the only kingdom that ever lasts, the only one with dominion. Amen? Amen. Now, if you're here this morning, there may be a couple reasons why you may be looking down. One of them, again, might be just because you're like, no, 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 like this is my kingdom. I can control this. I've got all this. This is my stuff, my kingdom. And you don't want to let go of that. If that's you, my hope would be that you would recognize before you're humbled that that is just not the case. That you would look to the one who was humbled on your behalf. Some of you might be here today, and you may not see it that way. You may be just like, I, I, I don't I didn't even know about this kingdom. I just knew, I've just been told my whole life, this is what you've got to do, is build this thing. And now I'm, I'm starting to learn. If that's you, I pray that you would understand there is one who comes and he calls. And he, Jesus, one of his first words were, hey, the kingdom is near. Turn and follow me. You see, when we fix our eyes on God, it changes the perspective. And we see a kingdom far greater than anything this world has to offer. And the writer of the Hebrews taught us that we don't now, we don't just look, because Jesus came, we don't just look up in general. We fix our eyes up on one man who came. He is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And we run with perseverance, the race marked out with us, with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. He's the author of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. This is an amazing thing. So if you're here and you're not sure about that, we just pray that you would come before God and say, God, show me. Show me this kingdom that Jesus speaks of. So what I want you to do is I'm going to give you some time to reflect on this. Just a couple minutes. I want you to do something a little different. I don't want you to think that looking down is a bad idea. So if I say, hey, pray and bow your heads, that's not necessarily bad. Bowing is actually something we probably need to teach on a little bit more. We need to probably take a different posture. Talk about postures. Chrissy talked about postures today. I want you to take a different posture just for the sake of the message. The whole thing was about looking up. So I want you to, in your seats... I'd like you to just, instead of bowing down, I want you to just raise your head up a little bit and look up. And you can close your eyes. Some of you have been sitting like this for about 30 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. No, I do want you to, I want you to, to look up for a second. Christian's going to play some background music. What I want you to do is just for a couple minutes, I want you to, to engage. And if you're here this morning and you're not, you're not sure where you're at with God, I'd ask you to engage with your thoughts, Okay. And maybe the Spirit of God will speak to you. I pray that He would. But if you're here and you, you know about God, and, and, and you'd, I would ask you to engage with God. And that you would, you would spend some time lifting your eyes up to Him and saying, and maybe confessing and trying to renounce some things in your life and saying, God, I'm, I'm trying to build my own kingdom. I'm looking down at my own navel all day. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to look up to your kingdom. I want to look up. I want to fix my eyes on your son, Jesus. And take some time. Just take a minute or two here and do some business with God. And then we'll sing. After you have a couple minutes to do this. Father, I pray that as we look to you, the one who has dominion, sovereignty over all things, Father, we confess. We renounce the things that get in the way. 
We don't want to be like Nebuchadnezzar, Father. Show us. Father, if you do need to humble us, help us to see that's what you're doing. So you would lift up those who have been humbled. Just like your son Jesus who who took on flesh and, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that one day every name... Every, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that you're Lord. So Father, we want to confess that now, that you're Lord and we are not. Brothers and sisters and friends, may we go from this place and may we fix our eyes up towards heaven, towards the one almighty God and his son Jesus Christ. May we fix our eyes on him and not on ourselves, that he would be glorified and that others would also proclaim of his glorious name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks. Have a great Sunday.